Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Hey crew, you legends are listening to episode 26 of the Howie Games Artist Series Part A, featuring one of Australia's big guns. Big guns in the acting world, a man that has played the Hulk. Talbot. Yeah. You're making me angry. Con Petropolis. It's the culture, Daryl. The place is full of culture. Chockers. Chopper Reed. Hello. Hello. Nero. Hoot. Avner. Poyder. Hector. Aaron Falk. The list goes on and on and on. I'm, of course, talking about the star. That is Mr. Eric Banner. Honour the gods, love your woman, and defend your country. Now, this is the perfect crossover of sport and the arts. Cars, bikes, footy, tennis, golf, and being a movie star. Although Eric is far too down to earth to describe himself as that. He goes with part-time actor. Tells you everything you need to know about him, I reckon. Low-key, engaged, very un-movie star-like. Did you charge the batteries? you got to charge your batteries, mate. Didn't you read the instructions? Eric's new film, it is a beauty. It is called Force of Nature, The Dry 2. It is in cinemas now. Nature holds us all to account. So... I've seen the film. My review. Here we go. It's a murder mystery, a really great adaption of Jane Harper's novel. It's sort of a wet, brooding Australian bush-type scene, cold winter. You cannot pick who done it or why they did it. Eric is fantastic, as always, in the lead role as federal agent Aaron Folk. Great cast, too, including Deborah Lee Finesse, Jacqueline McKenzie and Richard Roxburgh, to name just a few. I loved it. For me, five stars and six stars. For, actually, seven stars for Eric. Thanks to the legend, that is Bianca Kerwood, for making this episode happen, alongside Gillian Heggie at Nick's and Stefan Scariotto at Roadshow. Thank you to those fine folk. One final thought before we roll. If you ever became a big deal, like a big, big deal, famous worldwide big deal, you'd like to think that you wouldn't change? Whether you would or not, I don't know. You'd like to think that you could stay as grounded as Eric Banner. Enjoy your story. Welcome to the Howie Games Artist Series. This is going to be happening for a while, but he is here now. He's the dominant star of The Force of Nature, which I watched last night, which we need to discuss. An all-round Aussie legend and a man that loves his sports, so he's perfect for this show. Eric Banner, welcome to the Howie Games Artist Series. Howie, pleasure to be here, mate. Um, this is, this, uh, Bianca, your all-round legend is a star. We've been trying to do this for a few years and we're all good to go. And then the writers strike. Never have I read the Hollywood press before to find out what was going. So it is great to have you here. Mate, it's a pleasure, honestly. Yeah, great to be here. It has been a while in the works, but, uh, you know, patience pays off. Exactly. It? Mate, there's so much to talk about. Um, and, and we, we talk about sport and your professional career, but talking about sport, I'm... I've just came off the test match in Brisbane um, and it's been a long test summer and I got home last night and I got the link to the movie and I'd read the book and I said to my wife, I'm cooked, early dinner, I'm going to try and push through 45 here. Fair enough. But I couldn't remember who'd done it and you had me from about three minutes in, so congratulations, watch the whole thing, love the movie. Um, I got I got so many questions for you. I got so many questions for you. But... What is it like, firstly, when you go and watch the movie? When do you first see the finished operation? Well, it, it's different on most projects. I'm a producer on this one. So with this and the drive, it's very different because I'm seeing, you know, 100 cuts of the film before anyone gets to see it and in on the edit and so forth. So it's, it's um, the magic's kind of distilled. Okay. So you sort of end up more in awe of, of the editing process. And Because let me tell you, no one wants to see the first cut of a film. Well, it's a bit rough. 
it's always rough. Is it? And it's all, always needs a lot of work. And it's quite fascinating the journey that a film goes on from beginning to end. Um, but in general, most of the time, um, I am seeing close to a finished work, um, if not a finished work. And it's usually by myself, either in a cinema or, or at home. And it's always a um, daunting experience. I, I really try and divorce myself the first time I watch, really just looking at the big picture. So the first viewing is usually quite easy. If I, if I catch it a second time, it's pretty brutal. It's much harder to watch. Oh, on because you, you're looking at yourself. Then? Yeah, yeah. Then it's hard, huh. it's harder to. At first time, I can just I'm just a blob on the screen. It doesn't affect me. Second time, I'll I'll be all over myself, um, and it's far more uncomfortable. And at that point, if you if you look at something and say, say like Usman Kawaja is looking at his technique and he's like, ah, I need to change that. So he's working on it for the next test. Can, can you then go back and say, you know what? When we do this, can we cut around this at all because I'm not happy with what I did here or is just, that's it? Um, if I'm giving notes, it usually will be big picture notes about, about the film itself. So not so much about covering my ass on a performance. Okay. You know, and then quite often you can fix tiny things in the ADR in, in, in doing voice work afterwards, but I'm usually aware of it on the day if it's not working. So if it's, if it's, if something's not great, I'll say to the director, I'm just not this is not feeling great or I think this is too slow. Can we try something different? Because of the stand-up background, I think one of the things that it equips you with is like this instinct that like, this is not, this is not great. This is not hmm. feeling like it's hitting the mark. And I feel like we're a bit slow. Um, it, it was okay on the page or it wasn't great on the page and we thought we could fix it and we have, let's try and fix it now. Um, I think that instinct's always, always there. And I'd much rather fix it on the day then try and save it in the edit or worst case scenario, have to come back six months later and do a reshoot, you know, and you're on to, you're on to the next project. Good. It's, it's, you always get your head around it in the end, but when you get that phone call, you're like, Oh, I've had, I've had that shower. Right. You and know? now I've got to go back into it. <laughs> yeah. So, so with, with force of nature, it's funny that you said your first view is big picture and your second view is you, because I knew we were going to be talking about it. The film was a bit peripheral to me. I was watching you the whole time. Um, and you're just so good at what you do. Oh, thanks, man. Not, not like you, I, I don't want to be cheesy, but because I, I haven't really watched a film just looking at the, the character before. Um, I know nothing about filmmaking, but it, you're just so convincing. Like it's, it's, as, as it's folk, is it Aaron Folk? Aaron Folk, yeah. It's yeah. you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, I've always believed that everyone can act, right? It's, True, I could give you a bunch of lines and you can walk on a set and yeah. yeah, but what won't work for the viewer is that reaction that you just gave. Right? So that will bleed through. Okay. If you don't feel like you can do it, yep. we're all over it. And so the, the 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 challenge and the kind of journey I think for any actor is you have to be one hundred percent convinced that you are that person or you are capable of being that person once you step in front of the camera. So most of the work occurs before, before you go filming. My favorite ever quote from one of my favorite filmmakers that I've worked with was Ridley Scott on Black Hawk Down in pre-production. I was looking at, in the art department, looking at all these drawings and talking to him about some sequences that we had coming up. And he said to me, I've already made the film, right? Just got to go out and shoot it. <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, the shooting of the film is just the mechanical execution 
of what's already in his head. He's already been down that road. He's made all those decisions, you know, which I thought was a, um, it was an amazing thing to hear at the start of my journey because it's, uh, it applies to acting as well. But yeah. what happens if Ridley, and um, we'll get to, like, we'll get to Munich. Oh, I love that film. And I watched it again on a plane the other day because I knew oh. Richard. I love that film. I've been immersing myself on Qantas flights in your work for the last two weeks. What happens then if, if the big name director, like you think, yeah, I've got it, but what he's got in his head, you're not producing. Are they like, ostensibly we're a sporting show often and, and the feedback athletes get can be quite brutal. Do you yeah. get that direct feedback on a, sometimes, on a movie set? Sometimes you can. And that's okay. That can be exciting because what it means is, your interpretation of the scene is different to theirs. That doesn't necessarily mean that either of you is right no. or wrong. It just means, oh, we're going to do it a different way now. Gotcha. So you've got to park the ego and just go, all right, what are we going to do? Well, what do you want to try? Um, you know, is it too slow? Am I going too fast? You know, am I, am I, am I putting the wrong emphasis on, on her or him here instead of, you know, thinking about it from another perspective? So that's usually a very collaborative. I've only, I've only, I've had very few cases where someone wants to, you know, haul you in and say, "Hey, I don't think you, this isn't working for me." Or huh. That very rarely or never happens. So it's usually just a conversation about this is where we're at. Um, some directors are comfortable with showing you the monitor and looking back at previous takes. Um, some actors hate that. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't mind because I'm, I'm happy to to recognize something that I don't think is working as well. So yeah, they're all different. Two questions about force of nature. One, it struck me as cold and wet, which is what the book is. Yeah. I presume it was winter in yep. Victoria. Where was it? So we stitched a few places together. We're at Dandenong Rages, Latrobe Valley, Otways, basically. Okay. So you would have been up in the yeah cold, wet, yeah, and that—that's as you as you read in the book. That's that's the location, and that's the weather that's that's there. And and Jane Harper does a great job with like with locations in yep. her stories. They're a central part of the drama, and you have to feel like the women are under threat. It can't feel like they're just going for a nice. Well, it it trip. is it is um, the whole thing is foreboding right mm. from the start. I think because of the weather and how cold and wet it is. The other question I had for you: How many days are you filming that film for? Um, how many days are you there on set? This was about seven weeks, seven and a bit weeks. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, can you just flip in and out of the characters? Like, so when you go to have lunch, are you then Eric? And yes. then as soon as we get to the shoot, you're Aaron again? Yeah. I've, I've, I've heard different stories about actors' approaches and tried different things. And particularly when you're doing accents, when you, you know, when you're doing a lot of work overseas, you know, some people will try and maintain their accent 24 seven or all through the day and, I just find that exhausting. It would be. Exhausting. And also you end up picking up bad habits that you can't hear. Um, so I'm an in and out kind of a guy and I like to pace myself and I, I, I get very tired mentally from, from the focus of, of the job. So it works for me to dive in deep and then towel off and refresh and come in, come in again, you know, so some some roles might be different than others. Some you'll sort of lurk in the space a bit a bit more. But generally speaking, and also, I mean, especially if you're a producer, like there's decisions that might need to be made at lunchtime, or yeah. you know, like there's practical so you have to things move that out have of to. That. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about sport before we get to your journey. You at the Australian Open men's final? I was very lucky. Yeah. Stick it out. Mm. Good Mate. answer. Good answer. Because that was if you said no, I was like, eh. 
Mate, I've been lucky enough to be, I was at the marathon, Nadal, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. I've been to the big, long five setters. And always stuck it out. Always stuck it out. Yeah. 1.30, 2am. Yeah. I couldn't move the other night. I I, I was just. Did you think Sinner was gone? Two sets down? I, I I did, but I was there two years ago when Medvedev was two sets up over Nadal, which was to this day one of the most incredible sporting displays I've seen because the third set, Medvedev was not off his game. He just dropped 3% in that third set. I mean 3%, and Nadal got a break, and it was just on. And I'll never forget that because, yeah, it wasn't a case of him sort of falling away or like not getting his serve in. It was just this intensity that just managed to just sink a tiny bit. Nadal, as you know, it's just point for point. He never had the body language of someone who was two sets down. So, but but coming back to that, I didn't think the way Sinner played the first two sets that he had the weapons to get past him. I thought he just had to keep staying in the point and hope that Medvedev was going to falter somewhere. And I would love to have heard the commentary on the night, which obviously you can't when you're there, because I wanted to hear what they were saying. Um, but it was it was quite fascinating. I was driving home from the airport late after the test match in Brisbane, so I was listening to it on the radio. Interesting sport to uh, listen on the road, cross court, backhand, forehand, backhand. Forehand. I'm not sure it quite translates. Do you love your tennis? Like, what, oh, I do. What's your favourite sport? Cricket. 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 Okay. So you're I work cricket on cricket man. and yeah. footy, but um, like I would prefer to surf than anything else, but yeah, I do love calling the cricket and, and the footy, which we'll get to. So when we talk about these sports, okay, can you play tennis? I can play tennis. Okay. Yeah. What, what Not are you, great. I are mean, you I'm a sort of serve volley man, are you baseline slugging away Sampra style um, or are you coming up rafter style? I'm creative. I creative. I'm a bit dinky. I like to, I like to pull out the repertoire. Okay. A few little slices. That's a bit tricky. Let's just say there's a knee reconstruction that's occurring today because I'm a fan of the drop shot. And right. It's not my knee who's being reconstructed. Right, right, right. So you, you, you caused an ACL is what you're telling with a little dinky one. Especially if I play with men my age, I, okay. they're, 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 they better be good runners. <laughs> okay. So that's tennis. Footy. Why the Saints? Just always since I was born, um, my grandparents, my parents, uh, my mother, um, one of my uncles was a saint, and uh, I just followed them since, since I was a, since I was born. Really. So, what's your first memory of going to them, watch the saints? First memory is going to Moorabbin and standing on cans and being fed through the chicken wire to sit on top of the players' race. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So my uncle used to take me. We lived in Tallamarine. I'd get dropped off to Ferntree Gully, and then I'd go to the game with my with my Ferntree Gully uncle. To Moorabbin, and yeah, I'd, I'd spent I'd spend the days on the on the players' race behind the chicken wire, um, and then I remember just I, I remember being so excited when I got my license that I could actually drive from Tallamarine to Moorabbin for our home <laughs> games. That was like the most important thing about getting my license was that journey. I'll never forget first time I pulled into the Tucker Road Primary School car park. Oh, we're on here. This is, <laughs> life doesn't get any better than this. And who who was you as a, as a kid? Like whose number did you have on your back? Who who was the man for you? Well, as a kid, I mean, obviously we all love Trevor Barker. I was a big Joff Cunningham fan as oh. well. Um, I loved them all. And then obviously, you know, I was lucky enough to to be there for through the Plugger era. And Nicky Winmar's probably my favourite Saints player of all time. Yep. Um, so that era was pretty special, and the Waverley era, you know, all all that. Did you go to the? The Ross Lyon Grand Finals. I've been to every Grand Finals since post my birth. Have every you? final, yeah, I don't, Have you? I don't miss anything. How was it walking out after getting so close? Talking about ten, yeah. To be honest, 
Nine ripped my heart out more. Okay. Nine. Nine was Geelong, yeah. Geelong. That absolutely ripped me in half. I was I was just devastated for weeks after that game. Um, Ten was tough, obviously, the drawn grand final. And the replay was a weird game. Mm. I remember walking into the G week two and it feeling, because all the corporates had dropped off, right, it felt like a big home and away game. Yeah. And you felt the Collingwood Army more so in week two than week one. Um, and it just had this kind of foreboding, big home and away kind of semi-final, qualifying mm. final feel almost. Um, and it was just it was ugly. It was ugly. <laughs> it was bad. Did you play footy as a kid? I did. Played for Essendon Grammar. Right. I now want to hear about this. What position? What were you? And I want you to compare yourself to a modern day AFL player. Where were oh, you? Yeah, where, that, where were you? They're all dying to hear that comparison. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was one of the taller guys in our B team, and okay. I wasn't that tall, so I had to had to go ruck forward with a, with another mate of mine, and sure I'd always got- come up against some beast. You know, who who had a you know a mountain man beard and was like six foot six, and I was probably back then about six foot, and yeah, get smashed in the ruck and then and then go down forward. But when I was little, when I was smaller, when I first started playing, I was on the wing. Okay, because I I used to do a lot of little ass, used to do a lot of sprinting, so I loved playing on the wing when I was when I was younger. So we were like a, a hard running. Just trying to think of who's out in the wing, like sort of Wangani Malera type, or were you a bit more in and under Stevie Baker or big ruckman? Were you more your Rowan Marshall? I, I reckon I was, the, I was on the guy in the half forward flank, constantly waving his arms, <laughs> just trying to hope someone would pass the ball to him. Who's that guy? Uh, yeah, who's I'm that guy running around time. trying to get a kick? Yeah, yeah, okay, right. So, so that that that's footy, motorsport. Um, yeah. Obviously, you've got a massive passion for motorsport. So when you were speaking about driving down to um, Moorabbin, what were you driving at first? Oh, so so I, I've, I've always had the beast, the old the old Falcon. Yep. But I think for for early stand-up days when I was just traveling around, I had an old Toyota Corona that had holes in the floor and was full of rust and was mustard color. That I could mustard. just park. Yeah, oh, I was a shocker. But I could park it anywhere. And I was working as a, a you know, in, in bars and stuff as, as a barman as well as while I was doing Santa. So I needed something that I could just park anywhere on the streets of Melbourne and get the job done. So it was a it was a shitty old four-door Toyota Corona. So so the love, you know, and the beast, I I've seen the beast. It's I loved it. I loved it. I, I think um I think Munich still tops it, but but I, I think did, it does. I, too, I, let's but, be honest. But, but okay. I loved, I loved the beast. So, with, with motorsport, and you, you still obviously ride your bikes and drive your cars now. So, as a as a viewer, I've had the pleasure of working on the V8s, the MotoGP, and sure. Formula One as a kid. Which which what's grabbing you? If I say right, we can watch any race this weekend, any category. What are you going for? Uh, MotoGP will be MotoGP. Hundred percent. Yeah, right. Were you surprised by the? When I used to do the Moto GP on 10 with Daryl Beattie, so we'd see the practice sessions as well, Eric, and he would say to me, because I'd say, I'd love Marky Mark Marquez. I said, he's going to beat Rossi. And he said, you know what? We watch these practice sessions. He throws it down the road so often without getting injured. At some stage, this is going to come yeah. and bite him in the ass. And Daz was spot on. Who's your Who's your number one Moto GP? If, you, if you're watching one rider, who is it? Right now? Well, no. In, in, oh. in, in, in your watching career. Oh. I mean, Dewan was my hero. Was he? Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. Great. And when you consider what he was riding around in terms of injuries, yeah, and the kind of bikes he was riding, I mean, 
the guy was a freak. I mean, I love Casey Stoner as well, what what he did on the Ducati in particular. Yep. There's so many. I mean, obviously I'm a huge Rossi fan. So much respect for Casey though. Um I think he had a I think he had a had a harder bike to ride to his world championships and some of the others. Absolutely he did. Yeah. And of the of the events you've seen live, if you could go back and watch one event again across your motorsport, what what are you going back to watch? A live event yeah. that I've attended as a spectator. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to see any motorsport overseas. Okay. Um, been to Bathurst a couple of times. You like the Bathurst uh, vibe? I, yeah, I do, but I'd, I'd say MotoGP at the island would be up yeah, there. Yeah, okay. It's a hard track, I think, from a spectator perspective to get a, get a sense of just how incredible that track is. I'm trying to think where would I tell someone to stand. Yep knowing that track so well, I'd probably tell them to go outfield hay shed. Yep. Right? Because you can get, when you get on the, f- close to the fence there, you're actually, you get the exit out of Siberia, you get that peeling left, you get the right through the hay shed, then they come towards you before they go up to Lukey Heights. And I think you get a real sense of, of just how fast they're going. I mean, the, the straight's amazing. Turn 12 always blows my mind, the yeah. speeds they carry through there. Um but yeah, I'd say MotoGP. Have you done the two-seater around there? I did. Was I it the did. best thing you've ever done? Was it with Randy Mamola? It was with Randy. How good's Randy? It was. I was a bit nervous with Randy because- <sighs> Have you it, done it? Well, yeah, with Randy. And he was a bit too casual for my life. He just jumped on the back, mate. We'll be right. And I'm like, I'm not sure we will be right, Randy. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, selfishly, it was the best thing ever for my track days. Yeah, of because course. Because that's my track. And- and we had a good chat beforehand and he knew I was a rider and he's like, okay, this is what, this is how it's going to be. Acceleration's not going to blow you away. It's going to be amazing, but it's going to be roughly what your brain is going to be expecting. He said, braking will, will probably blow you away. But again, like you'll have a, there'll be a calibration. He said, but I'm going to freak you out on, on corner entry speed. And he was right. You can't stop, mate. Stop. I'm like the a man of load into the front tire in the early part of the corner just just squashed my brain in half. It just it was like I had no there was no tool to calibrate. Yeah. for that coming into turn twelve, I was like, oh, we go, we're 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 joining the line of buses that's going up Cow's Road or whatever. We're going straight for some reason. He's he's seen an exit that I can't see. We're going down an escape road that doesn't exist. Boop boop. And then he just slightly got on the brakes and just, he said, he said, I'm able to load, this is what scared me, he said, I'm able to load the front tyre more than I would if I'm on my own because I've got a passenger on the Ooh. back. I loved it, but I was very relieved when he came right. in <laughs> after the second lap or one and a half laps, whatever it was. I thought, yeah, that's enough. That is definitely enough. Unbelievable. Yeah. The m- most thrilling thing I've ever experienced. Yeah, I, I'm, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and I don't know which bike you were on. But I was on the last year of the two-stroke right. 500. Okay. So that's a serious bike. It was just mind-boggling acceleration on that thing. It was just incredible. And you, you, do you still get out and ride now for yeah, pleasure? Yeah, Yeah, right. yeah. Well, so you, you're like a, a day tripper or, a, you know, on the track or? So the island, I'll do, I'll actually trail my, my race bike down there and do do the track day on that. Yeah, so um, that is that is such an incredible racetrack. I mean, you can see why. International riders are just so yep. in love with it. Always cold and wet for MotoGP, I found that. Time, like it'll either be 40 or that suddenly you'd come it's in. It's not the greatest month, Howie. No, let's no, be no, it's not. It's not. Watch this space, though. You never know. <laughs> 
Back to Eric in a moment. Next up on the show, we are chatting to a fascinating fella, a three-time premiership player with the Brisbane Lions and a premiership coach with the Collingwood Football Club just last year. Fair resume. His name, of course, is Craig McRae. The coach, Craig McRae. Today was already the best day of my life because my wife gave birth to a little girl this morning at 7.45. So, darling, I'm coming over tonight with the cup. I love you. Craig McRae, a man you'd love to be coached by, a man you'd love your kids to be coached by, on this show next week. Let's get back to Eric. Okay, so you... You, as a kid, are you a creative, artistic kid? Like, are you, you know, are you doing pantomimes for relatives or no? Um, I never got into drama when I was at school, but I always did impressions. Always did impersonations and accents when I was a kid. Oh, but did I, you? I didn't, I didn't relate that to being creative or anything like that. I and I didn't see, you know, a stand-up comedy career. I was just making members of the family laugh and then mucking around at school, getting into trouble or getting out of trouble because of it. Um, but I wasn't in any school plays. I wasn't part of a drama group. I didn't know anything about, I, I was no one creative in my family. The school was very sporty. They, they were very artsy as well. We had an incredible music program at Essendon Grammar and apparently there was a drama program. I didn't know much about huh. it, but, but soccer and football were the main things and basketball were very strong as well. Uh, and you were growing up in Tullamarine? Yeah, I was growing up in Tullamarine. So what's yeah. your, what's your family's, um, heritage? Father Croatian, mother German. Right. Interesting household. Okay. So where did they meet? They met in St Kilda at oh, a dance. So they'd both moved to Australia. Oh, the old dance. Yeah, both both former Bonagilla migrant camp. Okay. Yeah. So came out on the boat, uh, went through Bonagilla, spent some time, you know, on the border there. So this, at Aubrey. the end of the Second World War type territory. Yeah, early fifties. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then and then both moved to Melbourne, met in Melbourne, and the rest was history. So what did your dad do? My dad is the longest serving Australian employee, he's retired now, is longest ever serving employer of Caterpillar Australia. Is he? He did forty seven years. Oh, what's his name? Caterpillar. Ivan. Ivan, that's an outstanding yeah. effort. Forty seven yeah. years of service. I hope you got more than a gold watch for forty seven years. I think it was a golden D ten maybe on a <laughs> on a on a plinth. <laughs> he was in logistics. He was in the in the you know sort of warehouse management logistics area. Right. Yeah. So so the, you're as you say you, you skipped drama class. So did you was was stand up your first thing? Stand up was my first thing in okay. Melbourne. Yeah, first show. Yeah. Well, tell me about it. Where was it? Were you just packing your dacks? Um, well, it was a bit of a sneaky one because I was working at the Castle Hotel in North Melbourne at the okay. time. Barman. As, yeah, but well, I wish I was a glass boy. Oh, you hadn't even Lower elevated a barman. At, at that stage, I was You're still- You're a glassy. Glassy. Well, it's probably one up from dish pig, but that's about it. Yeah, did, did that after after hours. Um, had a dish pig job at Denny's, actually. <laughs> so my pedigree is pretty outstanding, actually. When you You're always destined to be CV. a Hollywood star, weren't you? Denny's and a dish pig and then a glassy. Um, and then there was a there was a guy there who was like a promotions manager who would put on different nights to try and get people to come in because it wasn't an easy place to get people to come to in North Melbourne those days. And he decided to put on a comedy night and he got a couple of professionals and he said to me, because he saw me, you know, mucking around after work one night, he said, why don't you give stand-up a go? 
And to me, stand-up was like Richard Pryor and, you know, legends, Eddie Murphy. And I said, no, mate, that's not for me. He said, I'll take you to a stand-up venue. I'll show you what it's like. And we went and saw some stand-up. And I watched a slew of people get up who were not very good. And then I watched a couple of people get up who were good. And I was like, these, these ones before the good ones, are they getting paid? It's like, yeah. What are they on? You know? <laughs> what are they on? What are they on? So it's a financial reason like, to get involved. Let's, let's, let's pull the curtain down here. What's this fella on? You know? I was like, well, that, that's, that spot's, you know, about 60 bucks and that spot's about 120 and the, the, the headline is probably on about 300, 400. I was like, I'm, I'm equating it back to my dish pig rates and <laughs> my glass boy rates. It's oh, a lot of hours. I see what you're saying, mate. Um, let's, let's, let's look into this a bit further. So we, we had this comedy night at the Castle Hotel and I, I got up as a random, just, just did five minutes. And, um, Prepared, stuff ready to yeah, go. Yeah, I wrote some stuff. I wrote some stuff. And it wasn't a comedy venue. It was just a pub. And that went okay. And then- What um, does okay mean? Like Couple people laughed. Yeah, okay. people laughed. Like it went it went fine. Did you get your 60 bucks? No, I was, that was that was a freebie. Oh, that's almost for nothing. And the, the professional who was on that night was a guy called Peter Fox. And he came up to me afterwards and said, you, what are you doing? Like, you got to give this a go, which is very sweet. Um, so there was a couple of early influences, you know, a bit of encouragement. I didn't really see the pathway. So then that was it. I just, I went and started doing tryouts and I got off to a good start and people like, you should give this a go and we'll book you for there and book you for there. And then it was just on and it's just, just kind of gathering momentum. And I gave myself two years. So I'll give myself two years. I don't want to be one of those tragic comics at the back of the room. Who's, what, what are mum and dad thinking? Oh, they're just relieved. <laughs> Relieved. That's a good answer, I reckon. Relieved. We've been worried oh, about the lad, but he's, he's got some money up coming in. up comedy. <laughs> Relieved. So, okay, so you didn't want to be one of those blokes that, that would, so you gave it two years. So I didn't want to be plan. a tragic, yeah. Right. So I gave myself two years. Um, and then things things went pretty well early on and I just kind of one thing led to another and I was Traveling and touring with some really good comics and learning a lot and working a lot and so you're up to the two hundred or three hundred dollars slot now probably in the middle bracket now okay not the headliner but supporting right. the headliner okay um, and uh, you know developing more material it was sort of ready to go on the road ready for the tougher rooms Howie <laughs> okay where's the toughest room you played toughest room I ever played in my life yep private bin in Canberra private bin private bin was a bar. On Northbourne Avenue, slap bang in the middle of Canberra, upstairs, and it was a disco. <laughs> and they'd stop the music, and the DJ would introduce you, and and people would have their cocktails, <laughs> and they'd be like this, and they'd stop, and they'd annoyingly turn around, and you'd walk onto a stage the size of this desk, <laughs> and try and hold the attention of three or four hundred people. So they're in the middle of you know Sweet Caroline, and then right, let's get to the comic. Tough it's crowd. Tough. tough. Did you win them over? I had a few good gigs there. I had one that was on the tough side, and then I realised, oh, this is the toughest room in the country, and it was a bit of a test, you know. Okay. If you could survive the bin, you could you could, you could do anything. You could do anything. And and the, what's the feeling like when you're up on stage and there is a, a, a quite a big crowd and they're actually really laughing and into it and you're entertaining them? It's pretty addictive. I think the best feeling, even better than them laughing, is the thought, that you know the next piece of material that you're about to unleash is going to work. Okay. I think that's where the satisfaction comes from. So <laughs> it's like, okay, this is great. 
But having the the space, having this, I guess if you put it back to motor racing, it's almost like you're coming into turn one and you're coming second, but you know, based on corner exit, you've got this guy at turn two. That's a great answer. You know? Um, and so stand up for me felt like that when, when you had a, a good amount of material and you knew the crowd and you could sort of predict where it was going to go and you knew that you were doing well with this bit, but you knew the next bit was going to be better yeah. or that you felt really confident that, that it was going to work. That was the best feeling because it's, it's full of so much, um, there are no guarantees when you walk out. No. Even if you had a, if you had a cracker night the night before. And as good as your last innings. hundred percent. Brutal. The better you get, I mean, you see great people who are very prolific, you know, they, um, they can get over that if they've got a lot of material, you know, because it's like a DJ, right? This song's not working. It's, oh, I've got something else in my back pocket. Yeah. So when do you first end up on TV? First ever television appearance was on Steve Izard's show. Have you got it on a VHS or something somewhere? Right? VHS. Right. Somewhere. And um, Oh, he's night show. He used right? to get, yeah. he used to have comedians on, I think, I think from memory, Friday nights was his like, he would get comedians on maybe a Friday night. Anyway, I was at home and my Nokia went off <laughs> and I picked it up and I went, hello. <laughs> <The big break. laughs> and um, luckily for me, it pays to have a cell phone back in those days. Not many comics had them. Saw it as a good investment. Yeah. Thought, well, if I'm not that great, I'll at least be able to be contactable. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had pulled out uh, and they needed someone that night. That night? That night. Oh, I'll never forget it. I might love to have had a heart rate monitor on um, behind the curtain that night because it was, it was you know, like the, right. the shirt would have been like this. Right. So you were peaking. Fluffing away. Um, that was my first ever television appearance. How'd yeah. it go? Yeah, it went okay. Went okay. Went out and did, did sort of five minutes and... Um, can't remember if I went and sat at the desk afterwards or not. Probably not, because I would have been a completely unknown. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was the first box ticked. So it wasn't red faces or anything like that. It was Steve Isarcho. And then he became a boss. You know, years later I auditioned for Full Frontal and yep. his production company produced that show. And, and was that the next major step for you? It was, yeah, auditioning for Full Frontal. So so when you so when you get into that, of all the all the enormous success you've had on, what is most often when you're walking down the street quoted back to you? Like, is it Peter? I'm Peter. How's it going? Sweet, mate. Right. Or Chopper. No, no, she's sweet. Oh, Keithy seems to have done himself a mischief. Stay back, guys. Step back, keep out. You all right, Keithy? Or Troy. All my life, I've lived by a code. And the code is simple. Honour the gods, love your woman, and defend your country. Or your accent in Black Hawk Down. So you're thinking, don't. Because, Sergeant, you can't control who gets hit or who doesn't. Who falls out of a chopper or why? It ain't up to you. Well, what's the one you get the most, you reckon? It's really hard to predict um, what it is the person's about to pin you for. Yep. Some, sometimes I can profile them based on age, demographic. Okay. I'm, is it going to be this or is it going to be that? And then it'll be, you fixed your car yet? <laughs> it's a lovely beast. <laughs> you know, quite often, obviously, it'll be chopper. Um, it'll, 
how are people's general chopper impressions when you get them back to you? Pretty average. Right. <laughs> and then I think they get them confused and they're, they're actually doing Neville Bartos instead of chopper half the time. Well, I find that sort of the, it's, the chopper... It's Vince's line, yeah. no cash. You know, that's yeah. not even my line. Yeah. Well, that's true, that's true. But seriously, Nev, like, how are you holding for cash? I'm, I'm a bit bloody broke. Listen, mate, what are you talking about? There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash, all right? Cash, no. Robbo, no cash. I find I get a bit confused between Chopper and the kickboxing. Is he an accountant in the castle? <laughs> yeah. I find I get those two a little bit confused. Con. Yeah. Sorry, Barrel. <laughs> it's a good place, though. And the hotel Trace and I were staying in, they had this one channel, kickboxing, 24 hours a day. <laughs> and, and, and when people recite that back to you, like that's a... From from where I sit, that's a form of expression or love of you. Oh yeah, no, work. it's all at all. I'm so lucky, mate. Honestly, I, I, I don't, I cannot recall a negative interaction with the public. Right. Like I am so lucky. Like yeah, when I that? hear about some people that you know have have a bad time, I, I really feel from because I just you know my interactions with the general public are just always so lovely and positive and. I feel very lucky for that. Um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, okay, every now and then it might be annoying, but you're always reminding yourself, you know, that's where it's coming from. They've seen something that they liked. Great, you know. So back in the day, I was like the news reporter on Channel 10 News when I was doing the V8s, but I was like the, you know, cut up a tree story before quarters did the sport. Or, you know, this is the bloke in Epping that's got a cure for Nathan Buckley's hamstring issue. Like, just the real wacky shit. Or there was a UFO and none of what, and you know, how he'll go out and report on it. And I can't remember what the thing was, but it was go and interview at like a seedy underground bar on King Street, Chopper Reed. Oh, wow. And I remember walking in there with Fitzy, the cameraman. And as soon as he walked in from the camera, like three quarters of the bar cleared out. Like Chopper's associates did not want to be on camera. But I I remember him as being tremendously engaging when mm-hmm. the camera came on. I presume you had to spend some time with him, did you, before the movie to get yeah. a grasp of what you were doing? Um, I mean, I didn't have to. It was made available okay. and I thought oh. I've, got to, I've got to make the most of this opportunity. Um, so it was really beneficial to me just to get a handle. I mean, you don't always want to do that when you're playing a real person because sometimes it can get in the way of your prep. Okay. And was he open to you having a, you know, hanging out to see what he was all about? Yeah. Uh, and he, he always loved to talk, right? So I think yes. I think having some people coming to listen to him was very appealing to him. He, he really loved to tell stories and hold court. Yeah. You don't get a lot of, you don't get a lot of words in. Um, and that's what I was there for, to just, just listen. The, the, uh, i got so many questions for you. The, I, I want to know how you get massively ripped when you're in an action movie, but you're a big boy in Chopper. Yep. Like, what, what would what would you have been – how much weight did you have to put on for that? Uh, it was a fair bit. I think back then I think I started off at around 92, and yep. I think by the time we wrapped I was around 106, 107. How would you do it? Not pretty. Was it just like pizza and beer or? Yeah, it was, unfortunately I had to take the unhealthy route because we didn't have the time. So you had to do it quickly. To do it quickly. We I, we shot the first half of the film in four weeks and then I had four or five weeks off and we started shooting the second half of the film. And that's when you had to get bigger? It's pathetic when you think about it. Right. Um, so but, I was, I did everything I could and then I was putting weight on during the second phase of the shooting as and well. And how were you doing it? 
just junk food. Right. Just a lot of a lot of calories and junk and sugar and crap and, and terrible. Oh, you wouldn't do it again. So mentally, how did you deal with being a fit young man and having to put yourself in that position? Like I'm sure it's great going the other way, but what happens when you have to do something that's bad for yourself physically? Um, I was lucky enough. I was young enough at the time. I didn't have to think too much about what it was doing to my body, you know. So I was able to just really go for it and not not care. And I was just so. So obsessed, you know, when you get a role, you're so obsessed with what you've got to do that you don't really think about it too much. I was probably more concerned that, you know, is this going to work? Like, am I going to get enough weight on? You know, um, what stage is the camera going to pick it up? You know, and then I remember feeling different. I remember getting more tired and lethargic, remember moving different. I'm like, okay, this is good. This is good. This is good for me. Remember people, people's response was really interesting. I remember going to the footy. I remember going to Waverley one day when I was in, I was filming. So I was bald with the mo, and I put on a fair bit of weight. I remember people just getting out of my way. Right. And I went, oh, this is why people have that look. <laughs> <laughs> this is why blokes go for a look. <laughs> right. You know, An intimidation look. I, was, I wasn't doing anything intimidating. It was just, just the people look. just get, people just move a little bit more than they normally would. Um which, you know, that became interesting. Well, okay, all right, I'll use that. You know. um, but, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking deeply about what it was doing to my okay. body. That is the end of Eric Banner, Part A. Plenty more to come in Part B.